0: I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable, high speed internet. Today, I am joined by Jisoo Song, broadband advisor at the U.S. Department of Education. We discuss the digital divide's impact on students in the U.S. and the role the Department of Ed plays in connecting schools and students to broadband and digital resources. We also talk about the Department's Digital Equity Education Roundtables Initiative and how educational institutions can utilize broadband funding from the infrastructure law to help close the digital divide. Jisoo, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's my pleasure. So just to start things off, I would love for you to just tell us a bit about your role of broadband advisor at the Department of Education. Um, and broadly speaking, what have you learned about the digital divide and your time working there?
1: Sure. So my name is Su Song. I serve as a broadband advisor, as you mentioned, in the Office of EdTech. And my primary role is to collaborate with agencies across the federal government to help maximize the impact of programs and policies around advancing broadband access and digital equity. Um, For those in the audience that are less familiar with the Office of EdTech, OET sits within the Office of Planning, Evaluation, and Policy Development, or OPEPD at Ed, otherwise known as our policy, policy shop. And OET's mission is to establish that national vision for how technology can be used to transform learning. Um, to answer your second question, you know, we've learned that from the pandemic that there's a direct link between the digital divide and students' educational outcomes, right? From a research perspective, we see data point after data point showing that students who lack access to this fundamental resource or are dependent on the mobile device, you know, exhibit lower digital skills attainment, homework completion rates, GPAs, number of other factors that has implications for post-secondary success as well as um, workforce readiness. And we also know from, you know, recent data that this divide disproportionately impacts certain students' communities, like our students of color, students from low-income backgrounds, and students from rural districts to a disproportionate extent. So that is precisely the reason why the Department of Education and the Office of EdTech is getting involved in the conversation.
0: That's great. And you touched on this basically uh, in your answer that you guys are really looking at digital equity. So tell me a bit more about that work you're doing on digital equity. How does the department define digital equity and how are you working with educational communities to actually achieve that equity?
1: So let's start with the bipartisan infrastructure laws definition of digital equity. Right. Um, The legislation describes digital equity as uh, the condition in which all individuals and communities have the information technology capacity that is needed to uh, needed for pu- full participation in the uh, society and economy of the United States. So that's a great sort of foundational legislative definition. At OET and the Department of Education, we're also framing digital equity in terms of digital opportunities. We want to make sure that all learners have opportunities that are unlocked through um. That fundamental access to technology and broadband, this not only includes, you know, the transformative learning experiences that are unlocked through technology, but also those whole child supports um, like, you know, parent educator conferences, social emotional development opportunities, um, access to basic needs services, mental, uh, telemental health and telehealth services and things like that. Um, so as OET engages with this topic of digital equity, we've been hearing from school leaders, district leaders, educators, and even students themselves that it's not enough to make broadband available and affordable, although those things are really critical steps. We have to make sure that we're solving for the human barriers that often inhibit adoption by our end users. Um And at OET, we're interested in the state digital equity planning grants that were announced from our colleagues over at NTIA at the Department of Commerce last month. Um, With these digital equity plans, we think states have a really incredible opportunity to address some of these adoption gaps that were illuminated um, throughout the pandemic. And to help with these efforts, we've launched an initiative called our Digital Equity Education Roundtables Initiative, or DEER Initiative for short, um, to inform leaders about adoption-related barriers that learners and families furthest from digital opportunities face so that they can focus on these sort of uh barriers in their digital equity plans. So starting at the beginning of this year, we held a series of national roundtable conversations, hearing from organizations and groups that directly represent some of these communities, as well as families and students themselves. We also had a chance to hear from a variety of different sectors, including ed tech nonprofits, state and local education leaders, philanthropies, businesses, think tanks, research organizations. And we'll be using all the insights that we've gathered through these conversations to develop a guidance publication that informs states about common adoption barriers for each learner community, um, share some strategies um, that we could use to get around them, and also um, relay some example stories of success. I actually had a chance to read a um, close to final draft of this um, this week, and I'm really excited for the stories we'll be able to tell through this publication.
0: Oh, that's really exciting. When do you anticipate that's going to come out?
1: We're anticipating that this will come out in September, mid to late September time frame, Yeah.
0: Okay, and that lines up pretty well with when states are going to be getting their, their uh, plans together and everything. That's when we'll be seeing the, the data from the FCC, allegedly, on, on uh, broadband access. So that's, that's exciting. Um, is there anything you can illuminate for us about some barriers to adoption that you've uncovered or, or uh, solutions even?
1: So these conversations with uh, our communities have revealed adoption barriers uh, that should be addressed as the bipartisan infrastructure law funding rolls out. So what I'm going to say next isn't an exhaustive list by any means, but here are a few points that we definitely need to be thinking about. The first is awareness and understanding of the available programs and resources out there, as well as the new ones that will be created with the additional funding. And from our perspective, this is a highly underutilized uh, strategy, especially given data from the emergency broadband benefit last year, which showed lack of awareness as one of the biggest barriers to enrollment. Yeah. Second, you know, we need to uh, make sure that we're supporting folks in signing up for these available programs and resources, because this can be really challenging and cause confusion around eligibility, application, distribution, and installment. And this is especially true for our newly arriving immigrant families. And I can say that from personal experience coming from an immigrant background um, you know, Some communities have leveraged you know, community advisors, digital navigators to assist these learners and families sign up for various resources like the Affordable Connectivity Program from the FCC. Third, trust between communities and services essential. For a lot of different communities, there's a lack of existing relationship between the public-private sectors and the constituents themselves, along with concerns about you know, data privacy, hidden or unexpected fees, or future costs. Um, A quick story here, you know, when OET did our roundtable with the parent community, uh, we had an organization actually present who was able to translate for refugee families from Burma. And that organization, as a trusted messenger, had been actively helping them um, look for affordable Internet options since the beginning of the pandemic. And this made me realize that we often don't recognize the power and leverage of these critical intermediary organizations. And then lastly, of course, we can't forget about the digital readiness and digital literacy skills among learners and communities because that can also support adoption. Um, there have been partnerships with trusted institutions like schools, libraries, and I've heard even museums are getting involved in this to build families' digital literacy and provide technical supports. We've also seen examples of internet service providers getting involved in this, uh, investing in trusted uh, community spaces not to not only um, enable further access to broadband from that physical space, but also provide these types of necessary uh, technical and digital literacy sports, supports. So. Again, this is not an exhaustive list, but these insights will be core to the guidance resource that we're working on right now. And we'll be elaborating on these barriers with stories of those who have experienced them firsthand, share some strategies um, that communities have been implementing to navigate these barriers. So I'm really excited for that.
0: Wow, that's really exciting, and I'm really looking forward to reading the full report when it comes out. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, community awareness around programs and stuff and uh, and you you did reference the uh, emergency broadband benefit, which mm-hmm. is now the affordable connectivity program and it's technically a long-term program, although we have to see <laughs> if it gets right. refunded eventually um, but w- you know, what are you hearing? From schools, from students, from educators, about the impact of those programs. You know, noting that we do have to do more to uh, get more people enrolled.
1: Right. First, um, with regards to your affordable connectivity program, we're really happy to see that the president was able to secure commitments from 20 different internet service providers to offer low-cost, high-speed programs, so that households signing up for the ACP benefit can essentially get connected for free if they um, use one of those services. In the fall of last year, we actually had to, had a chance to convene a listening session for the FCC in partnership with IMLS and HUD, uh, where the stakeholders that we convened loaded sort of large gaps in awareness of programs like the EBB, what well, the ACP was called uh, back then. So hmm. I'm really glad to see that the FCC is sort of doubling down on the awareness campaign behind the ACP, and I'm involved in that coordination um, with the White House as well. Um, we've heard from many stakeholder groups that schools often serve as hubs of trusted information resources for many communities when it comes to broadband. And that role was uh, essentially accelerated uh, due to the pandemic. So to help our office with the help of FCC and also the Department of Agriculture recently updated our ACP page with the tools to help schools in their outreach about the ACP. And you can find those resources at tech.ed.gov ACP. On that page, you'll see a set of FAQs that discuss aspects of the program that are the most relevant for K-12 students and families, as well as suggested strategies that schools and districts can use to communicate out about the ACP. We also created some resources to make it easier for schools and districts to communicate with families about their eligibility. So the first is a template letter that schools and districts can use to let families know that their child receives free reduced-price meals under the National School Lunch Program or the School Breakfast Program, um, and so their household meets the eligibility criteria for the ACP. Some schools and districts may be also directly involved in helping families sign up for the ACP by communicating with providers, and we certainly encourage that. But in those cases, schools do need to receive consent from the families uh, to share the students' eligibility for free or reduced-price meals. So we're providing some sample consent forms on the tech.ed.gov ACP page as well. So we know that we need to continue putting the word out there about the ACP um, I've heard that there's been some progress in using the metrics that the FCC has been measuring, that there's been an uptick in the folks taking advantage of the program. So that's really great to see. But we can't stop here. And OET recognizes that we're continuing to support.
0: Fantastic. Wow, you guys are doing a lot of great work. And I'll make sure that we um, link in our show notes to, to the ACP page on your site. Um, uh, I guess the last question I have for you, really, is you, you mentioned the report on digital equity is going to come out in September. Um, in the meantime, is there anything that you want, you know, states, communities to know about how to be preparing for uh, f- for making those plans, or anything you want them to know about about your work and how to engage with you guys leading up to all that?
1: Right. I think we have to start with knowing what we don't know, right? So stakeholder engagement is going to be really critical to developing an effective and comprehensive digital equity plan. Mm-hmm. So as states convene community-based organizations, community-anchor institutions, we don't want them to forget about the education sector, LEAs, SEAs, school leaders, um they have data and stories that can be really helpful in making sure that the strategies that are being explored are responsive to the needs of learners that are furthest from digital opportunities. And they can help make sure that the strategies that are being explored can directly impact learning outcomes in an equitable manner. I would go even uh, far as to say that, Families and students who have been impacted by the digital divide firsthand should be involved in these stakeholder engagement events as well. This includes our learners of color, uh, learners from rural communities, learners from digitally redlined urban communities, our native communities, um, low-income post-secondary adult learners, and more. There's also subpopulations of learners whose needs often go unnoticed in these planning efforts, and we've been learning about them through our DEER initiative. And we also encourage states to make sure that they're getting heard as well. This includes, you know, students with disabilities, our highly mobile student populations, like our migratory students or students experiencing homelessness, because their digital equity challenges are very unique to themselves, as well as students that are impacted by the judicial system, maybe in reentry programs. So... Yeah, making sure that all of these students, families, communities, caregivers are involved so that the strategies are responsive to the needs that were illuminated and exacerbated by the pandemic.
0: Wow. Well, it's clear you're doing a lot of work here, and we are all better off for it. Thank you so much, Jisoo, for your time and for the incredible work you're doing uh, in this area. It's, it's really important.
1: Thank you for this conversation.
0: My pleasure. Thank you again, Jisoo, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Pierre Landrieu, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.